You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with New York Times bestselling author Adam Alton. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The book Irresistible is about the rise of screens and how they've encroached on our lives in a very broad way. And that's true for kids. It's true for adults. It's true for basically everyone. I think the reason it's particularly important for creativity is because some of the most creative minds have themselves been very resistant to technologies that have got in the way. What really got me interested in the topic in the first place, there was an interview with Steve Jobs just before he died in 2010. He had just released the first generation of the iPad, which turned out to be a very successful product for Apple. And he was asked in an interview a couple of months later, how do you feel the iPad is performing? Are you happy with its release? And so on. And he said lots of things. He said, yes, we're very happy. It seems to be doing very well. But at the end of the interview, he was asked a question by the journalist. So your kids must love the iPad. And his response was very surprising because he had told everyone, you should have one, your kids should have one. But when he was asked this question about his own kids, he said, they've never used it. We don't allow it into the home, which is deeply surprising, right? It suggests something about this very creative mind. He was always known for being brilliant and out of the box and for coming up with phenomenal products and amazing branding and for being very, a bit of a perfectionist in what he released into the world. He decided that he needed to protect his kids from the very devices he was telling the rest of us to be using and to be giving to our kids. And so for me, that was totally fascinating because a lot of what I do rests on creativity, coming up with interesting ideas, immersing myself in a subject. Yeah. So how do we take advantage of the screens and the technologies and the opportunities for learning and connectivity that they provide? It really does open up a positive element of globalization and many different aspects, but while still reining in and leaving space for the personal time and the in-person connections and our own personal creativity. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. I think when you start speaking to someone who's critical of tech, as I am, one important question is to ask, do you think all technology is bad? Should we be you know, rolling back to the 1950s. I certainly don't believe that. The reason I'm critical and became interested in this criticism of screens is because I love them and I think they play an incredibly important role in our lives. And if you need an illustration, living through the last few years during COVID, we were in some ways very lucky to have access to screens because as much as they tethered us to work in a way that might not have been healthy for everyone, they also allowed us to communicate socially with people who might have been unreachable to us. I mean, if you imagine if COVID had hit 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, I think we would have been much more atomized and um, separated from other people than we were. It's hard to imagine what they might've been like. I'm sure there would have been pros and cons, but absolutely there are tremendous benefits to screens. And so implicit in your question is this idea that whatever you're doing on a screen, it's not monolithic. You can do lots of things. You can do good things and not so good things. It's always worth asking this broad question. What are the pluses? What are the minuses? And how do they work together? And when you add them up, are you ultimately enriching yourself in this moment by using the screen? Is it relaxing? Is it bringing you closer to other people? Is it helping you work more effectively? Or is it on balance, not such a good thing? In which case, maybe you want to try to work out how you can curb your use. Since there's been so many events, like the Facebook whistleblower recently, how she spoke out about the addictive methods they use and what you were saying about how oftentimes technology companies will try to spark negative emotions like anger. Mm -hmm. Do you think it all comes to a head at a certain point when the companies or the corporations, the people creating this tech, reach a moral threshold if it becomes too all-encompassing for society? I've been thinking about this problem long enough to have seen a number of changes, some arcs and how we've thought about the issue. So one thing that happened was when I was first interested in the topic, it was actually not that easy to sell a book on it. So publishers were convinced that we all love tech 
and they weren't convinced that we were critical of tech or that we should be critical of tech, which is in, almost impossible to believe. This is only like seven or eight years ago. So that's one thing that's shifted is we as a population, I think, are much more critical and are much more thoughtful about our relationship to these devices. One of the big shifts is that I, in the beginning, when I started speaking about this, a lot of parents would come to me and say, I'm worried about my kids, but now it's kids coming about their parents. And the reason that makes me hopeful is there was this question about what it would be like to be born into the era of phones. You know, if you're a kid, you're born your first couple of years, you're surrounded by screens. I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old. That's true for both of them. Is that a problem or is that going to mean that you learn coping strategies that the rest of us don't have? And so far, it seems like young people are coping much better with screens than older adults are. I'm hopeful that we're heading in that direction. I think there's a very strong drive for this to just get more and more intense. And especially with the rise of augmented and virtual reality tech, there's a lot of money to be made in the metaverse and so on. So I, I think that's going to push us further in that direction. But I, I'm hopeful that governments will eventually intervene perhaps, or that individuals will be better about making decisions for themselves. And they'll push these companies to, to take their welfare seriously in the way they haven't in the past. On that note about augmented reality and AI, you know, there's those, as you're saying, who are optimistic about it and machine learning. Manage it correctly, we'll get more free time, freedom from mundane work, but, you know, it's a big bet on assistive technology. So what are your thoughts on the possibilities of AI helping us make more time for personal growth and connection? I think the promise of AI is boundless. You know, there's potentially so much good can come from it. And I think that was true about our screens in general 20 years ago, and we didn't know which direction the world would go. And unfortunately, I think we've had some great developments and some not so great developments. I'm similarly cautious about AI and virtual reality and augmented reality tech in general. I could imagine it being used for the ends of connecting us to people who are far away. You know, it would be amazing to be able to be in this virtual universe where I feel, I really genuinely feel like I'm in the same room as people who aren't there. We've never really been able to achieve that yet. I mean, Zoom, our conversation right now is a bit of a miracle, but it doesn't feel like we're in the same room, not entirely. It's good, but it hasn't reached that peak. So maybe that's what will happen. Maybe we'll even be able to create connections with people who are no longer alive, which I think would be amazing. So imagine you want to have a conversation with the most meaningful five artists who have passed away and you want to bring them back to a sort of dinner party conversation. And you could have these real version, real sort of avatar AI versions of those artists with their personalities effectively intact. Can you imagine having that dinner party? You know, there, I think there are some uses that are really amazing and engaging and if you take them too far, a bit dystopian, but I think they could be phenomenal. And so it's just this question about whether we're going to extract the best from these forms of tech or whether we're going to turn them into just advertising revenue generating machines, the same way that screens have been. And we do have to be aware of it because it's shaping itself in a way. It's kind of a lawless territory right now. We really do only see the end product, right? So th this is something someone told me once about Apple, that the products that are being released today, they must have been in the works for years. Right. So the things we're seeing today were probably in the works before COVID began. And so much has changed during that time. The things that Apple is working on today, we won't experience as consumers until 2025, probably. But these things happen fast. We only get to see the end product of them. And so we're completely incapable of intervening on the process, or at least there's a very big lag. And so if we want to have any effect on the products, like if today the government said the products that are being made today have to have these three safety features built into them. We wouldn't actually experience those products for a few years, just based on the way hardware works and the evolution of hardware and how it's designed and how it's manufactured. It just takes a long time. 
But yeah, it's from our perspective as consumers, everything just feels like it moves unbelievably fast. On that point, it would be nice, I guess, to have monitors just in the same way like the Food and Drug Administration. It's funny, people come up with all sorts of different metaphors and analogies, and that's a really good one. I think having an FDA, a Food and Drug Administration, or technology would be great. And one of the other ones that people bring up is this idea of the Hippocratic Oath, which suggests that if you're in the medical fields, you're supposed to, above all else, do no harm. That's your kind of guiding light. And it's a really useful, basic philosophical idea to use as your guide when you make decisions, because it forces you to do this kind of pros and cons analysis with everything you're doing. There is no Hippocratic Oath for tech, but it's a great idea, right? If Facebook says, we're going to introduce the like button, what's the worst that can happen? Turns out some pretty bad stuff can happen. But if you don't ask that question, you just don't turn your mind to those questions. Or maybe you aren't forced to. Maybe you know that they're there, but you just don't really look at the sun because the potential negatives are kind of overwhelming. So yeah, I, I agree. Some oversight would be great. And that's why a lot of people think the government legislation is critical with respect to technology, because we can't just rely on consumers to empower themselves when everything is being done to undermine that power. And the government might need to get it involved in some form. It's really interesting to me that around the world, there are different levels of intervention from governments. You know, there are some countries that are much more, we'll use the US term libertarian about technology. They say, you know, it's up to the consumer. Even if it's hard, you just have to decide as the consumer what you want your kids to experience, what you want to experience. If you don't want to use technology, don't download this particular app and figure out a way to just help yourself. I think that's unrealistic at scale. I just, I know too much about the products that are being put out into the world and our ability as humans to resist them, to know that to just rely on the bottom-up process of every consumer empowering him or herself is just unrealistic. The alternative is to go top-down. And there are some governments, Western Europe, Northern Europe, East Asia, and to some extent, Australia are at the fore of this, where the government is getting involved and saying, there are some things we don't want to happen when technology becomes a bigger part of our lives. And so there's legislation that says, for example, there are certain features that cannot be built into the apps that are used in this part of the world. There are two parts to being able to commune with people who are not actually around physically or because they're just no longer around in time. One is that it's, it's emotionally powerful, this idea of being able to bring people back, even if it's just AI versions of them. But if they're convincing AI versions, there's something really kind of magical about that potentially, if it's done right. So that's the one thing. The other thing from a creativity perspective is we know that more people around you is good for creativity. It's one of the axioms in thinking about creativity in general. You need time. I'm an artist, a writer. I'm a writer. I need time on my own. I also paint and draw. I cannot do that with other people around. It's just my process. But before you get there, before you get to that point where you need that time alone, that space apart, for almost everyone, being around other people is good. It's good for creativity. It's both about diversity of opinion and idea. And just about having more, just more information, more thoughts, more ways of looking at the world. And some of the most profound research I've come across in preparing for this book suggested that it's better to be around people who are deeply incompetent than it is to be around no one, which I found very surprising. I always thought, yeah, you want to surround yourself with people who are really good at the thing you're trying to do because it'll rub off on you and you'll end up being better at, you know, you'll pick up bits and pieces from them. But the really fascinating idea is that even people who do something worse than you do it are actually good for your creative process, which I hadn't really thought of much, but there's some really robust evidence to that effect, which suggests that there's not much cost to bringing other people's brains into the creative process, AR and VR tech. 
is that you can bring in more ideas. And, and I think that's one potential use of screens and tech and a greater diversity into the way you, you think about any creative process. People still bristle at the idea that they would allow devices to be implanted inside their brains. Like if I said to you, I've got a little syringe here and I'm just going to inject this little thing into the base of your brainstem and it's going to change your experience of the world for the good. If you're a creative, we can help you be more creative overnight. I can promise you all that sort of wonderful stuff. Almost everyone would say, I am deeply uncomfortable about allowing that to happen. We may become more comfortable with it over time. Elon Musk himself speaks a lot about the idea that we're going to have these implanted, I don't know what they are, brain augmenting devices in our heads at some point. He may be right. I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable about that idea. But honestly, as I said before, we're not that far away from that with our current devices because we allow them to be with us always. They are shaping how we think and they are even shaping how we dream because we spend so much time engaged with them. And so if you're going to feed your brain during the waking hours, a diet of all the crap that comes out of these spines, your dreams will also be in some sense reflecting what you've put in there during the day. It's not quite the same as shaping your dreams, but I think we're only a couple of steps shy of that now. So we've got to figure it out even before we get to that point. But yes, it could get a lot worse and a lot more intense and a lot more invasive. I think the most helpful education I ever had was not content. It was never like, here is a thing that's interesting. Here is an artist you need to know about. It was always a way of thinking about the world. It was a way of processing new information. And so I think that's something that's worth cultivating. And you don't get all that much time to do that. You get that when you're in school. And if you go to university, you get that in university. But then you go about the business of living in the world and you don't have as much time to do that. So I would say, if you're asking yourself, what kind of kinds of courses should I take or what kinds of people should I learn from? I think one of the things to ask yourself is, is this person teaching me a way of looking at the world that I can then take with me on to the next thing? I want to know that there is a useful way to process new ideas and new things because the world is going to evolve and then you're going to be faced with novelty and you're going to need to make sense of it. And I think that's at the heart of creativity is learning ways of doing things rather than what those actual things are that are in front of you. So for me, that's very important. What are ways of thinking about the world that are useful to you that will bring on creativity, whatever other useful ends there are that are personally important to you. And that's always been, I think, the hallmark of the best educators and the best minds that I've come across would be people who kind of shift the way I process the world and the information I come across in the world. We hope you have enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.